This podcast is brought to you by Mad Company, a nonprofit theater company based out of New York City. Hello, everyone, and welcome to One Hail of a Conversation. My name is James Hale. I am your host for this podcast. Uh, with me today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Gerard James, actor and creative extraordinaire. Gerard, <laughs> how are we doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Happy to be here, man. Fabulous. Yeah. This is, we tried to schedule this four or five different times, but you're just so damn busy. Oh, goodness. That we, yeah. uh, we can't get a hold of you. So we know each other from Lambda. We yep. uh, were on the MA course there. We also lived together through the pandemic, which was an eye-opening experience for everyone. You are a New York guy. Before that, I wonder if you can just sort of quickly sketch your journey from maybe budding artist or interest in the arts to where you are now. Yeah, I mean, I started off in like outside of the arts completely. Mm -hmm. So before I moved to New York in 2009, I was working as a trade capture analyst at JP Morgan. I did some classes. I did a class at Morehouse in undergrad mm -hmm. um, for acting with a teacher named Crystal Dickinson, who is in the show Covenant right now. Uh, oh, okay. still mentor and friend of mine. But that's when I kind of realized like, oh, I really want to do this. But I think, I, I think I just felt a lot of pressure to uphold this, this idea that I needed to kind of uh, carry the torch forward. Hmm. You know, my parents worked really hard to get to where they were financially. They're both from the projects of Atlanta. And I kind of felt this responsibility to... So like, all right, I got to carry it forward. I have to either be a doctor, which wasn't going to happen, <laughs> um, or a lawyer, which I did think about. But finance was something that really interested me because my dad, when I was in high school, he got he got laid off from a merger. And I was so interested in how that could upset jobs, but how could you create more jobs and was interested in M&A, which is mergers and acquisition. And I was just like all right, maybe I need to go to school for finance. Mm -hmm. And I went to Tufts University first in Medford, which is pretty much Boston. Uh, it is different, <laughs> but uh, Medford, Massachusetts, and realized very quickly that I wanted to be at a school that was, I wanted to be where my brother was in Atlanta. I wanted to be mm -hmm. near my family. Mm -hmm. uh, Tufts was very much like the high school that I went to in Connecticut and where I was a drop in the in the ocean uh, as far as in being a person of color. Hmm. And so I wanted to go to an HBCU, historically black college. And so I went to Morehouse. That's when I started taking acting classes or I took that acting class with Crystal. It opened up my eyes and I was like, oh, maybe I'll double major. And because I transferred from Tufts, double majoring would have meant I would have done five years adding of college. Time, it would have added time and then I felt bad because my parents were covering my college education, thankfully, with the small scholarship that I had. And so I was just, I kind of just put it on the back burner. Sure. And it wasn't until the stock market crashed in 2008 yeah, I remember. that I realized like, oh, I'm going to work and there are people whole groups of people that are no longer in the building. Wow. And so there was a level of anxiety and fear. Like the whole entire accounting department was asked to pack up their stuff and transfer it to another location or they were out of a job. And I knew there was a woman who I was who I was friends with who was telling me all about her daughter's kindergarten. She just her and her husband just planted roots in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, which is where I worked. 
and her daughter was going to school. And then all of a sudden, it was just like, boom, she had to leave. Um, And I just remember it being a very anxious, a very hectic time. I think this is also when the protests started happening uh, in 2009, like on Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street. All of that was going on. And I was just, and I realized how unhappy I was, but... There was this still this thought in the back of my head where I was just like, I want to be an actor. I want to be an actor. I want to be an actor. And it started to get louder and louder and louder the more we lost clients uh, at JP Morgan. <laughs> so I had these, I had like four hours free throughout my eight hour day, eight to nine hour day. And I just started, we had these two monitors and I always had my Bloomberg terminal monitor up. Mm-hmm. And then on the other monitor, I would, ha- I would be reading things about acting or reading interviews or I had this Harold Guskin, How to Stop Acting book. Sure. And I was reading that. And then when my manager, Gigi, would come by, I would I would <laughs> close shift screen. whatever and yeah. close the screen and have both of my terminals up and running. <laughs> and I did that for about half the year of 2009 before a friend of mine, Brooks Brantley, who's mm. he's he's a family member of mine now, Brooks suggested that I go to a conservatory. And so kind of in secret, he came to my house and <laughs> my parents' house where I was staying and he helped me with a monologue. I auditioned for this New York Conservatory for the Dramatic Arts, got in, told my parents that I was like, I'm going to leave J.P. Morgan behind. I'm going to become an actor. And it seemed like my parents were fully on board. My mom definitely was like, son, do what you love to do. Oh. Uh, because... She was like, the corporate life, like, if you hate this, it's just going to get worse. The more money you make, it becomes harder to then leave. Yeah. And especially, she was like, you're 20, I was 23, uh, about to turn 24. She was like, you're young, you don't have kids, you don't have a family, do this. And I thought my dad was on board. Uh, he, he he wasn't right away. He w- I, I found that out later that my mom, and this is, you know, I, I love, love, love both of my parents for this, but I love... I love my mom kind of telling my dad, like, just let him do this. Sure. You know, my dad, in his mind, I think, was like, what the hell is he doing? Like, he's got a secure job. Like, why is he leaving? There should be a better plan behind this. But that was kind of the genesis of it. And then I went from conservatory in 2011 to do Pace University, Mm -hmm. back grad program in 2014, did a summer at Lambda uh, in 2016, and then did the other master's at Lambda in 2019. And now I'm here. And here we are. And here we are. That's I. So I knew that you had done finance before. I didn't realize that you were there during 2008. That yeah, I literally I got hired March 2008. That's when Bear Stearns collapsed. Yeah. But it was like, yeah, it's Bear Stearns. Everything will be okay. <laughs> and then the fall of 2008, the winter of 2008 happened. Yeah. And then it was like buddies that I graduated from Morehouse with were losing their jobs. Goldman was okay. Like some of my boys at Goldman were fine, but like everybody else, it was it was we were in we were in like dire territory. Yeah. So it was yeah, it was it was a very anxious, stressful time. And I I quickly learned like oh, I'm really only here for the money. Sure, you know like I think Jim Carrey has this quote where he says, um, "I'd rather fail at something I love than fail at something I hate." Or fail at something that doesn't bring me joy. Right. And so I was like, I could get fired ev- like every day going into that office. There's a corner that I would turn and I would have my briefcase and I would 
<clears throat> I would turn the corner and I would just, I wouldn't even fully step towards my, uh, the cubicles in which, where I worked with my team. I would just poke my head out and be like, okay, we're all still here. All right. Oh my God. I don't see a box over where desk, but I do remember, I think the moment when I realized like I, I truly have to go was when we had a supervisor um, so Gigi was my was the boss of the team, but then we had like a, a supervisor and manager. Sure. And there was a guy, and this just shows you uh, just heart posture wise why you shouldn't make fun of people. But there was a guy that no one in the office really truly enjoyed, and I remember this supervisor, this manager, would make fun made fun of him the day he was fired. Like the morning we found out, he oh, was yes. just, we were heading down to breakfast the whole time and he was just, and I kept my mouth shut because I knew, I knew, I felt, I was like, I felt bad for the guy. I was like, yeah, I just lost his job. But this, the supervisor was just making fun of him and joking. And then we got up from breakfast and I remember uh, Gigi was like, hey, can I, can I see you in the office? And we were all teasing the guy. We we're like, oh yeah, 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 go to the office. And as we're setting everything up, as we're eating our breakfast, he comes back. He doesn't say a word. He's got a box. He's putting his stuff in box oh in God. a box. And we're like, bro, what are you, what are you doing? Like you messing around? Like we were just joking about this. And he's like, no, I'm fired. And that sudden, the 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 suddenness of it, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta get out. Yeah, you know, and. I've never gone back. And you did. And I did. And I did get out. You yeah. did You did get out. And you have found success here in the in the theatrical world in New York, in the, in the theatrical city. Like you you are yeah. making a go of it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny, man. It's like, I feel like that just started to happen last year. Sure. You know? And so what is that? 2009 to 2022 is 11 years you know like no 13 13, 13 years, years 13 years before i booked something that that changed kind of the trajectory of my of my career yeah. which was i booked much ado about nothing last year at denver center yeah and I mean, all the fear that was there leading up to that point because i had finally i had my first pilot season in january of 2022 mm -hmm. and i had been wanting that since may of 2011 yeah. you know and so you go you go that long and then you're finally there and i think you you can put so much pressure and i definitely did i put so much pressure on myself and even though i knew logically and even emotionally where it was like okay every audition i can't have the mindset that i have to book this thing right it's unsustainable but yeah. I, but I did, you know, it was just like, but it was there. <laughs> sure. Like every, every audition became something where it's like, I had to book, I had to be perfect mm -hmm. because if I didn't book and if I wasn't perfect or if I wasn't getting called back, a uh, call back to in or callbacks or put on hold, then my manager's going to drop me. Mm -hmm. I'll never, I won't get an agent. I'll lose everything that I've been working for, for the last 13 years, you know? And that was so much pressure to... Yeah. That was so much pressure to, to, to put on myself. And I was teaching at the New York Film Academy yeah. at the same time. And so, and sleeping on my mom's couch, my mom and dad's couch in Jersey. So it was just, what a wild time, what a wild year. And to book the job in, I think, July, June. 
because it was before Helena got married. So June of 2022, like it was six months of just, wow. it was a lot. It's it a, was lot. a lot. And it was a learning. It was definitely a learning curve for me as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, respect to you for sticking to it that long. I mean, that's years and years of, you know, any, any actors listening will know that that's just kind of what it is. Mm-hmm. It's just years and years of never knowing, never having a guarantee. Um, I think that's one of the things that other creatives even, um, or people who, who aren't involved in the arts at all don't realize is that when you look at people who have, who are on shows, who are, who are working, mm-hmm. um, it seems like there was an inevitability to it. Like these people were always going to have this job, get these work. But when you're going through the audition process and the trying to find agents and the trying to meet the casting directors, there's never a guarantee Right. Like until it happens, it might never happen, which is a terrifying thought when you're sleeping on someone's couch and working and trying to make every audition perfect. It is, you know, and I I remember one of the breakthrough moments for me emotionally happened when I read this book, Station Eleven. And uh, in the book and they turned it into a show on HBO. I haven't seen the show, but in the book, the book follows an acting troupe. Like, the world's kind of in this post-apocalyptic world, and there's a Shakespeare kind of acting troupe. And this, I rem- is, a, this is a show also. Yeah, right? they made yeah, it. Yeah, okay. they turned it into a show. And I finished the book, and I, and I had to, like, I remember praying one night, and I had to ask myself, I was like, would I still do this, find a way to do this, if the world had ended, if... You know, like, would I be one of these people who just mm-hmm. goes from town to town and acts? And I was like, yeah, I would. Mm-hmm. This is my purpose. And so that that shift of I have to be successful defined by uh, the industry standards of success. Yeah. And even, like, the dream standard of success. Because the dream of, like, oh, I want to be in movies and I right. want to be... For me, it was, I want to be Denzel Washington and Glory slash Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible when <laughs> I was a kid. You know, I was like, oh, I want to be able to do that. And then you realize, like, there are people who are making a really good living, have families, go on vacation, put their kids through school, who are not series regulars on television mm-hmm. or Broadway stars or film stars. You know, that, like, the working the working blue collar aspect of acting, which I think is so prevalent in London because there isn't really that kind of star system in London. Right. Like that, I was like, okay, this is possible. I can get married. I can have kids. I can travel. My kids can go to school. I can have a middle-class life and be an artist. And that realization coupled with the fact that I feel like, all right, I'm really in purpose Hmm. and Am I in purpose only when I'm getting paid to do the thing? And that was a resounding no. And so the moment I feel like I let go of, I need to be perfect in every audition. The moment I stepped in, and and I'm still learning that. I'm still, that's something that I'm still, that I still have to battle because I think the, the desire to be successful and really I think the perfectionism that comes from me being a, being a, a kid and, and wanting to break every single doubt that I think was placed on me. Like mm. I grew up hearing, I grew up in a pretty racist uh, community and went to a pretty racist high school. 
where all I heard was, you're not good enough. Even before I got to the high school, people look like you go to trade schools. They don't go to private high schools. Uh, You should just pick up a trade. You know, you play the violin. No black people play the violin. You should like just constant the constant negativity. And even with all the encouragement from my parents, that had a lasting impact, I think, on me where I was like, I was always fighting against lies that that weren't true about who I who I am and what I could achieve. And so needing to let that go, I had a coach named Victor who I who I still work with, who kind of had a nice powwow with me at the end of last year, mm-hmm. where he said he was like, every take you do, you think needs to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And he, to hear that from someone else, and I was like, say more, go on, what do you mean? <laughs> And he was like, you're showing your work because you want people to see how hard you've worked. Hmm. And I was like, and that just hit me. Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah, man. I want people to see how hard I work. Because, and, then I, I, and then I opened up and I was vulnerable. And I was like, here's what I've been through, man. Like, this is the amount of racism that I've dealt with and the amount of trauma that I feel like I've, I've dealt with. And... Yeah, I need people to know how hard I've worked. And he's like, the moment you do, though, we see you care more about showing the work and less about being connected with another person. Hmm. And that's where all the magic is. That's where all your, that's where you come alive. And he's like, you got to find a way to reconcile that. And so this year, doing R&J, And working with Mag Company, working with Hannah again, Hmm. like doing this play coping mechanism, the process that I now have is so inclusive of surrender and allowing my concentration to truly just be on, especially when I'm, whether it's an audition or whether I'm in a scene with somebody, that it's like God, me, my scene partner in the space. Everything else, I don't. Everything else has to go. Yeah. The moment I, the moment I, I start concentrating on anything else other than that, is the moment I go back into that cycle of like it's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfect. Sure. I got to be word perfect. Every scene has got to be, you know, fire and whatever else. All the false encouragement that I think an artist can tell himself or herself themselves, instead of just truly being connected with another person. So that was. I mean, now we're on coping mechanism. Yeah, but that, but that was really like coping mechanism for me. Changed, changed how I work. Hmm. Changed how I how I even approach the industry. Like there was a. So I'll, I'll talk. I I I don't. I want to go back. I want to go through like how coping mechanism yeah. came to be. Yeah, let's let's right? give a little context. For yeah, listeners. context. So yeah. you. Uh, congratulations! You just closed on your off-Broadway debut. Yes, thank um, you so much. Yeah, with this play called Coping Mechanism that played at the Wild Project uh, in the Lower East Side. Um, playwright named Cyrus Aaron, mm-hmm. um, who I believe is getting some some notoriety, sort of in the biz. He's he's made a few things now that uh, have gotten yeah. a little bit of attention. Brother's um, talented, which is really exciting. Uh, this show was I saw it 
I didn't realize, um, but the opening preview, I thought it was opening night, but it was opening preview. Yes, um, yes. Tight little forehand cast. You play, in addition to a, a smaller sort of bit character, you play the estranged, the ex-husband of the main character, maybe, or maybe uh, the... Ex-boyfriend. Ex-boyfriend. Yeah, the ex-boyfriend of, of, the, of the main character. Of the main Deborah. character. A, the, um, I believe a year earlier, there was a... I don't remember the timeline of the of the tragedy, but it, yeah. Right. So I play a character named James, uh, who James is the ex boyfriend of Deborah. Uh, they lose their son mm. to gang violence a year earlier. Uh, the play takes place in 2019. So in 2018, their son Nate or Nathan is killed by a gang. Uh, waiting for a bus at a bus stop right outside of his school. And so the play deals with gang violence. It deals with trauma. It deals with um, how two parents who have mostly been estranged and James has James was not in Nathaniel or Nate's life for the majority of his life. Mm-hmm. How do they deal with the loss of their son? And also how does... Lindsay, Lindsay is Deborah's best friend. How do they? How are they all dealing? How are they all coping with this tragedy? Mm-hmm. And so that's what the play, that's what the play is about. And I played James the. I couldn't look at him as the antagonist of the play, but now that I'm not playing the character, he, I would say he was probably from the outside. He's probably the antagonist of the show, sure. because he's the. What he wants more than anything is redemption and forgiveness, but then how he goes about it. Like any, I think, very well-written, Cyrus did such an incredible job. You know, like any well-written character, the thing that they really, really, really want gets pushed further away the way in which they go about trying to achieve it or attain it. And so James, how he goes about trying to get forgiveness is to get Deborah to go to the graduation uh, for his son. They're doing a graduation his class, Nathan's class, uh, his 20, I guess the class of 2019, that because they, they're graduating in 2019, they're going to hold a special honor, you know, honor. they're going to honor him in some special way during the graduation. Mm-hmm. They want the two parents, Deborah and James, to accept the diploma on their son's behalf while dressed up and give a speech, something mm-hmm. like that. And Deborah, from the very onset of the play, is uh, absolutely hell no. And James is, but this is going to honor my son, and I need to do this. But how he goes about it is very, very argumentative and combative with yeah. Deborah. And it isn't until the end of the play where he realizes that in order to get through to Deborah, he needs to take accountability and apologize and atone, really, for not being there for his son. Yeah, there's there were several beautiful moments um, where this character really... Either, I mean, I don't know how you decided to play, but either as a tactic or as a genuine moment of mea culpa has some really beautiful, uh, vulnerable moments where there, James is confessing to Deborah mm-hmm. about himself, about how he feels, about how he sees the world in a way that at least it reads like he probably hasn't talked like that to anyone ever. I mean, this is a this is a proud black man who's also a cop like these are not generally right. Who's uh, from the streets of Chicago? Yeah. So the armor is, I mean, it's it's thick. The yeah. armor is real thick. Did you, 
in finding a way into this character not just to play these vulnerable moments but also to put on this character who is so uh self-protecting mm-hmm. was there a, was it difficult to find one or both of those aspects to 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 put them together so that you can have a character who is so reserved and yet has these moments of release yeah it it was really it was really difficult in the beginning of rehearsal because we didn't have a long rehearsal period yeah I was, I was like sobbing throughout this whole play. Like I wasn't getting through scenes without shedding tears, without being so emotionally rocked Mm. by this tragedy. And I talked to, I talked to Trey about it. Trey, uh, Tremaine Harris is the director. I talked to Trey about it. I talked to even my coach. I had a phone conversation with him. I was like, man, I can't even get through. I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to play the character who's got it all together until the end of the play where he breaks. Right. And right now, I'm broken from the beginning <laughs> of the play. Like what do I do? And I got some really good advice about that which was you need you need the brokenness there in order to then learn how to cover because we as human beings all of our triggers are inside of us. Mm-hmm. The mask that we present to the world becomes this way of, becomes the armor, becomes how we, how we hide behind how we really feel. And so I needed to be honest and truthful about how I really felt and then add the layer of the, the posture of the, the police officer. Like I was mm-hmm. looking at I was looking at cops like I mean they're all over the place in the New York City subway but just how they how they stood and the width and the kind of like groundedness of the uh, of their posture I found a couple of guys especially big ones that I wanted to steal from and then I really wanted James to have a lot of weight mm-hmm. and so in my rehearsals at home I would strap on my backpack like instead of having it on my back I would put it on the front stuff it with a bunch of books, hold, you know, uh, a blanket, hold more things. I would just walk around with, with weight Mm -hmm. and like walk around like that. And maybe for like, as long as I could until I couldn't hold it anymore, go through certain scenes, go through certain dialogue with that, and then let it all go and see the effect on my body. And I felt like just a posture kind of came out of that. And I started bringing that into rehearsal. And then the moment we got the belt and the, the moment I got the holster for mm-hmm. the gun, the gun that they, that they got was a, was a fake gun, but it had a lifelike kind of a real weight to it. Oh wow! Sure. And so the weight on my right hip and having the badge around my neck and just all of that, all of that work really started to help with, the armor that James puts mm-hmm. on and then the the need kind of going back to what you said like this this idea of pride and having made it out of the streets and having yeah. this job as a police officer and knowing that I mean this is a and you know I think Cyrus hit hit the nail on the head with this depending on where you are uh in the city being black and being a cop is seen as a traitor mm-hmm you know, and that was echoed throughout the play, yeah. especially by, especially by uh, Lindsay, uh, who Deshaun played so well. You know, like 
that's echoed throughout the whole play that oh you're black and a cop like pretty much you you turn on your own people right but for james this was the way out you know and that's kind of i had to build my own kind of backstory with that why did james become a cop mm -hmm. you know but like this was his way out this was the way that he could provide you know they had a kid at 16 and his son dies at 16 so they're 32 about to be 33 years they're they're like 32, 33 in the play. And so to see the job as a way to provide something stable, pension, all of these things, wanting to clean up the streets in which he grew up, all of that adds armor and weight that uh, ended up being very helpful. And I sure. feel like by the last week of tech, really like maybe the last few days of tech, <laughs> uh, I was able to start really pulling that armor together, you know? Yeah. Because this was this was a really tight schedule. You had what was it, three or four weeks of rehearsal, and then a month of shows like that. I mean, it was, yeah, it was three. It was two weeks of rehearsal, a week and a half, I think, of tech. Wow. A couple of days of previews, and then three weeks of a show. Two weeks of rehearsal before moving into tech. Yeah, and we had two days of table table work, so it moved so oh, fast. Yeah. And I remember talking to uh, Ngozi, who's who's doing the Refuge plays right now, mm -hmm. and she was talking about her process. And she said, "Fast and deep. It has to be. You, you got to be. You go fast and deep." <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I I kind of had that echoing throughout throughout this process, where I was like, "Okay, the time the time that I have is the time that I have. Mm -hmm. But how can I go as deep as I can, and then really." And this is where I think my process started to alter because I, I, it had to alter this idea of trying to be perfect really had to go out the window and this desire to still play, even though we were in previews, the desire to still play and find things, even when we were in a show, of course, yeah. you know, me allowing not on purpose because I didn't want to mess with lighting cues or anything like that, but right. allowing something new to happen, a discovery to be made. That's where like that's where the show really became fun and it reminded me of my time with Hannah and y'all doing R and J, reminded me of working with Rodney mm. uh that first time when we did uh it's not War I mean it is War of the Roses, right. but Margaret he has Von Joux, Margaret yeah. of Anjou, you know, with that for me, the breakthrough of that and some of the notes that Rodney gave me right before we left Lambda, you know, where he was like, Man, you are you're so alive when you're truly in the moment. Mm. It's like, but there are times where I sense there's a there's your third eye looking down on yourself, judging yourself. And I was like, damn, how long am I gonna get this note, man? <laughs> like, I done got this note from I, I've gotten this note from other acting right. teachers. I go to London, I get this oh, note. I you. come back here, my the acting coach <laughs> start working with for this on camera class. It sort of gives me this note, and it's like, okay, this is really a psychological thing, not an acting thing. What am I going to do so I no right. longer so this no longer affects me as an artist? Absolutely. Because trying to get everything right is the death of creativity, you know? And when you're no longer creating, especially live and connecting with people, this can feel, especially when there are expectations on you and there's a tight schedule, it can start feeling painful and not joyful. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. 
on a on a slightly more technical note, yeah, you you were talking about wanting to give James this weight, so you physically strap on items. Um, either with this role or just in general, when you start approaching a role, do you have a con- fairly consistent method? Do you are you are you a Chekhov guy, uh, a Lobin guy? I mean, these are all things we learned at Lambda. Like, yeah. what has what has stayed with you, and what do you bring into your you know ev- your practice, your regular your regular approach to a character? Yeah, I think I think Chekhov takes precedent, sure, because that's what I think I, you know, Vince Vince was our movement teacher, mm-hmm. right? Like, Vince was my boy, so like <laughs> being like like real talk, like just being able to talk to Vince after I would always run up to Vince in the hallway. I would run up, to, I would go up to Vince after class ended. I was like, yo, like how do you how do you do this? Or this is how do I apply this to text? Or how do I apply this to an objective? Or to a scene where I want the character to reach a certain place. And he would just, he would just talk to me. Mm-hmm. And so Chekhov kind of, the Chekhov approach definitely, be, and all the psychological gestures, yeah. that definitely became my bread and butter and still is, I think, my bread and butter with how I physicalize actions. Lobin, we, I I want to use more of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's sure. so much that we learned we learned so much theory, and right before we were about to start applying all of it on our feet, the pandemic hit. COVID. You know, and then we were online. And so, I mean, I've gotten, I mean, you got the Christopher Yetz book, like, I've I've gotten various iterations of Lobin when it comes to Yet Malgram and Christopher Yetz, the sure, acting yeah. side of it, not the dancing side of it. Uh, books, I remember I got this, uh, I believe this woman's book who teaches at, I think she taught at Drama Center. Uh, Drama Center is no longer, you know, around, but mm-hmm. she either taught at Drama Center. Or I think she teaches at Central. Uh, but I got her book. I still have the book. I keep renewing it. I think I've renewed it eight times at the library, thinking <laughs> that I'm going to have all this time to this read it. This will be the one, yeah. Yeah. And that's where actually the weight, that's where holding a bunch of weight, there's an exercise in that book okay. where to physically experience weight you know weight space time flow like strong weight Mm -hmm. she has an exercise where the students are holding a bunch of heavy items and walking around and then you let those items go and see how that see how that affects your body and so that was a lot of an approach and now my process um what i do now especially because i would say the last two weeks of the show i had a ton of auditions Mm, which was amazing because i had no time to be distracted by the lack of time yeah you know where it's just like oh it's just got to get done right and so my process has now become one where i layer a lot of things in and however that kind of hits me in my spirit creatively whether it's lobbing whether it's checkoff that i will i'll take the tool out of the toolbox that i've this tool this 13 year old toolbox that i have I will take a tool out of that box, instinct, you know, on instinct. This is and what trust, it feels like it's called right, for, and so. trust my instincts with what I'm reading. And now I'm very much, I think, because of the class I've been in for the last couple of years, I'm very, I'm very big on theme. What is the theme of the piece, and how do we, as artists, as actors, how do we embody that theme, physically, emotionally? every objective and every single scene, how do we do that? And so for me, that's now where I start. I'll, I'll read I'll read a play and I'm like, okay, 
what is the theme of coping mechanism or what is the premise? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was everyone's coping mechanism is broken and the only way it's healed is through uh, vulnerability. You know, Mm -hmm. something around there. And then I'm like, okay, James, what's my service to that theme? And I'm like, well, my coping mechanism is broken and I refuse to be vulnerable. So James literally some incapable of there's an incap yeah. yeah there's in 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 it isn't until he's vulnerable at the end of the play that he starts getting healed mm-hmm. but he still makes a choice at the end of the play to not show up to the graduation which he's been wanting since the beginning of the play and so that's how I feel like it could be of service and then every other you know the when where what you know all those acting questions that right. we're we're told to ask i used to just sit down and write them all by hand and would get very analytical and would sure. be in my head yeah but now i'm like what's this given circumstance bet okay my son has been murdered i don't have a child and i definitely made a promise to myself cuz my nephew is 16 and black and lives in la mm-hmm. and i was like I'm not going to go there. Yeah. So I need to, I need to find another avenue. So what if, you know, I, I think I, I, I had to really just use my imagination and say, okay, what if I had a, my own son, right? Just play with, you know, it, what yeah. if I had a son and what would that be like? And then that's when the checkoff tools would come out. That's when, you know, I started playing with like, where do I feel, where do I feel shame for having not been able to be there to protect my son? And this is where the checkoff work comes in. It's like, what's that color? Oh, it's yellow. It's in, it's kind of, and with already the weight that I had as James, it's like, ah, oh, it's yellow and it's, or gold and it's kind of in the, between my, my traps or it's like in the center of my back. And if I breathe into that space, mm-hmm. how do I connect with that? And then when I did, I'm like, all oh, this emotion comes and I'm like, okay, there it is. That's where I'm relating to this circumstance. So then I would go through a scene just focusing on that. Mm-hmm. And then I'd be like, okay, how do I feel about Deborah? Well, we hate each other. Yeah. And we love each other. So where is the hate coming up? Where is the love coming up? And just I just started layering things in one at a time because I think I have a tendency to want to rush in and play. Sure. And then my mind and how it works will try to focus on a bunch of fragments and nothing's actually penetrating down into mm. the work. And so my process has changed now where I'm like, let me focus on one layer, not worry about anything else because all, I can put my attention or my concentration on one thing and let's see what happens. Yeah. And then let me let that go, move on to another layer and hope that it stays. Right, see see what is uh, inherited from that. Right, and that, man, like that became, and it sounds, as I'm saying it, I'm like, this is bait like that's basic that feels like acting one-on-one but there's something about the years of training getting all of it and then remembering at the end of the day no one can see behind the curtain right nobody's paying 30 something dollars if you see in an off-broadway show or you know more money to to sit and watch you be like look at all the tools i've learned i've gained over the years you feel me so it's like that that became something where I was like, yeah, Gerard, uh, no one can see the work. And you even, you the faith that it takes to say, I put this layer in, I hope it's there. Right. And I got to trust that Trey, the director, will let me know that it's, and and that took, that took a lot of trust. Like, 
there are times where I didn't get notes at all. Yeah. And I would look at Trey and I would, and there's this thing, I remember talking to Deshaun about this, he played Lindsay, where it's like, because of, I feel like the trauma you get in some acting classes, mm -hmm. I was like, I must be, I must be messing up. There must be something I'm doing wrong. Right. I was always approaching it from the negative and it wasn't until I had that conversation with her and I had another buddy of mine who came to see the show during previews. He was like, why do you think you're bad? Why is your foundation or your your neutral place that you must not be doing right. something it's good bad, or right? It's bad unless someone tells me it's not bad. Right. Yeah. The light bulb that went off for me during the show was that the audience and the outcome of this whole show has got nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. It's not in my hands. Some nights we would get a standing ovation. Other nights, crickets. Like claps. People would clap. Sure. No standing ovation. Other nights, people sobbing at the end of the play, people laughing throughout the whole play. Other nights, no laughs, no nothing. Mm. Show finishes, you get off stage, no one's coming up to you, nobody's saying anything. Mm. And it really, I'm so glad I learned that here. You know, because it's a four-person cast. I felt yeah. like with the big ensemble of R&J or even at Denver Center, Much Ado About Nothing like that, I was one of like, eight people nine right. i don't even know how many there there were of us in much ado but like they're gonna go up to the lead of the show and i'm not even the lead of coping mechanism but if it's just four people you know if people are coming you know up or who, staying yeah. or what and so to literally get to the point where you're like the audience and the outcome is not my job the effort mm -hmm. and the surrender is my job and that became so freeing and now that's in every audition i do that's in everything that i want to work on i have to keep reminding myself that the outcome has got nothing to do with me and then that can allow me to really play because i had a lot of i mean like if i'm just being transparent like i had a lot of anxiety the first the first few previews the first week of the show sure because i remember my uh my manager saying hey do you do you want me to bring people out to this? And I was like, yes, bring people out. People need to see the show. And she just and she just asked me a, a question that I think any rep would ask, which is like, how's your work in the show? <laughs> and I was like, oh God, exactly. <laughs> where I was like, um, it's good. I think it's good. And she was like, okay, because I'll bring I'll bring yeah, producers people, people or whatever and. Yeah. And I invited some, and we had some talkbacks for uh, uh, a Broadway producer came to see the show. And I was like, and, and then I just, the, the imposter syndrome, the fear mm. that like, oh man, what if they see it and I have an off night? Mm -hmm. What if they, I'll never work again. What if, what if, you know, like just all of that, all that negativity and really having to get to that point where that light bulb went off of being like, yeah, why do I, why do I start with the foundation that I'm not good? Right. Where's that coming from? Maybe I should bring this up in therapy. <laughs> you know, like, and how do I, how do I never step out on stage? Because I would step out on stage those first few previews and the first few shows, and I would feel fine. And right before I come out as David, the the conservative, uh, right, uh, conservative uh, talk show host person, news news anchor, I would hear just the negative i would hear the negative thoughts right before i would be in the curtain i would be fine giving everybody a high five backstage uh showing all the love to 
to to to to Kara and Maeve, who were backstage working with us, and you know, hug the cast and tell everyone have a great Good show job, and yeah. feel really powered up and ready to go. And then right before I step out, the negative thoughts, hmm. and then I was and, and then I would have to like concentrate on and immediately put my concentration on Deshaun, who's got that first scene with me. Right. And I'm actually looking out into the audience as David put my focus on how I'm impacting them. I would have to do all this extra work to kind of silence the negative the negative feedback. And it wasn't until a week later where that, that light bulb went off where I was like, oh, okay. The audience is not my job. How they respond to this is not my job. And the outcome of the show in general. Right. Who shows up? What, re you know, what, casting director is going to come what all of that i was like i invited people my rep is inviting people none of it is in my hands yeah. anymore you can only control what you can control right 100 percent. yeah that's another i mean i think that's just another way that arts and specifically theater is just so much like sports you know it's always it's a team effort mm, you yep. can only control what your job is if you do it well and everyone else does it well you you win you have a great night the magic happens um if you try but if you start focusing on things that are beyond your control and worrying about other people's jobs be it the director the lighting designer the other actors then you're not going to be able to do what you need to do to bring the the team forward to bring the group forward mm -hmm. um so it, i mean in a in a two slash kind of three-week rehearsal process that's a lot of discipline and a lot of trust that you have to bring both to yourself and your work but also to everyone around you i mean yeah it is you know and i think the fact that we we, we were helene who cast the show we all loved each other man mm. like we, there was so much love in this cast and eric who played my son like mm -hmm. he's 23 24 he was looking up to us hmm. with so much joy and so much life, so much energy and so excited to be a part of the production. And I mean, to pray before opening night, to pray on closing night, to just the, the, the love and the community and the connection that we all had, it was pretty, it was pretty instantaneous during the rehearsal process, which was so necessary. And thankfully, Jess and I come from, I, I've known Jess because she went to Pace. She went to oh, Act sure. Studio Drama School. And so she came in in 2017 when I was graduating. And so we have, we can kind of, we have a shorthand. We can kind of speak yeah, the same language. Absolutely. And, Share you know, she would say, bit, yeah. right. And so there was a comfortability already there on that front. And then Deshaun, I've met working on a web series. And I've, I've, I've known her for kind of just through other people for quite some time. So it was just, and then, like I said, Eric was just so happy to be there that it, and Trey, Trey was this, is this incredible director who has this ability to really allow his actors to collaborate, really feel like they have input, mm -hmm. and he still shapes the show. Right. Like, we didn't even realize, it's just like, like subtle ninja kind of like, you don't even realize it's happening until you're like, oh yeah, we've there's some shape to this. And so for Trey to be able to do that while make, like, the... I think I shared this with you after uh, the the night that you came, but the mirror moment was an mm. idea that I just brought into rehearsal. I didn't ask if I could do it beforehand. 
I, I think I might have said, oh, I want to try something. And Trey was like, go for it. And I remember doing it, uh, which is, for the people listening, the in the play, James uh, gets the graduation gown from Deborah to try on. And he tries it on. And for me, during the, the first rehearsal of doing that on our feet, I had the idea at home when I was working on the monologue or not the, well, when I was working on that scene. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I think I'm just going to see if this works. And to just kind of create the mirror and put it out in the audience, fourth wall. And for me, I made the choice that that's the moment. Uh, Deborah's got a line where uh, there's no mistaking that Nate was your son, something like that. Mm. And then for in that moment for James to see himself as a fraud, to see himself, wow. to see his son in the mirror looking back at him and realize that he doesn't deserve to wear this gown. James doesn't deserve to wear yeah. this gown. And to have that moment and for Trey to be like, yep, we're going to keep that. And then all of a sudden, a mirror existed. And, and then, then Jess and Deshaun members, use, yeah. right, like uh, Jesse plays uh, Deborah, who's magnificent in the play as mm -hmm. well. Like just everyone else just started using it. And I was like, man. Wow. And I that's the first time professionally I think I've given myself that freedom. The first time I really felt that freedom was I think at Lambda. Sure. Where we were working with Rodney and Rodney's like we had those private, you know, rehearsals with Rodney where we would go off and work with him. He would always say bring stuff in. And I would I think I got I was so kind of wounded during pace and I had some great teachers at pace. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to like, you know, uh, disparage the school. Right. And I think because I, the way of working was so different there, mm -hmm. you would bring in a choice and you would get kind of torn down. And there's like, if you get torn down in response to your choice, it becomes that much harder to bring a choice in again. the room again. Yeah, of course. And so I think I kind of had that. But when I was working with Rodney at Lambda and that got even encouraged by Ali, by Hannah, uh, by Penny as well, by mm -hmm. everyone really, where it was like, bring in a choice and we'll either give you the thumbs up or we'll give you the thumbs down, but we're not going to make you feel bad for bringing in the choice. Right, it works or it doesn't work. But it's right, and I remember, I remember doing something. I was playing King Henry the, I was playing King Edward the mm Fourth -hmm. in that Margaret of Anjou play. I remember I brought something in rehearsal and Rodney was like, we're not going to keep that, but thank you. Thank you for bringing that <laughs> in. That was really bold. And I just remember thinking like, oh, so even though we're not keeping this, I felt affirmed that I yeah, could bring absolutely. in the choice. And that for me was like a little, that was a seed that got planted that now professionally I'm like, the hell have I been doing? I'm doing this and this is what I feel like in the acting class that I'm in. And Hannah definitely encouraged this in R and J, mm -hmm. like and I got the freedom to do that, especially as Ben Volio and the dancing and yeah. how moonwalking on stage, all this stuff that I was doing came from that seed that has continued to get, you know, watered by Hannah, watered by my coach Victor, mm -hmm. watered by my other castmates, and feeling like if something happens, if I discover something, especially if you discover it during a show. Don't feel like you got to repeat it. Allow sure. it to allow it to show up again. And that, going back to that show at Lambda, I I remember in the moment, 
there's a moment where I wanted Nicole, who played my brother uh, George George Clarence, uh, mm. to bow to me. And the the Daniel Day Lewis, uh, uh, there will be blood. I drink your milkshake gesture. <laughs> just I had the thought in the moment, and my body responded instantaneously to go over to her and do this and put my finger on her shoulder until and i remember nicole looked at me like <laughs> and bowed and i remember that moment and i was like this is freaking dope this is cool this is cool <laughs> yeah. that to be able to affect another person in the moment to have the idea come to you from god from the universe from whatever you believe as an artist for it to come in for my body to be sensitive and responsive enough to respond to it mm -hmm. and then to come out in action and the action was written and this kind of goes back to check off and even the lobbying work we've done which is to like get george to bow to me there are many different ways you could do that sure. but in that moment that action got played out in that way and then it's like oh that was awesome <laughs> came and we did it the, the second time we did the show i purposely was like if it comes up it comes up even in rnj there's certain moments where i'm like when i was on stage with you with that monologue, Benvolio's monologue, or mm. when I'm on the stage with Chris, like there were certain things that came out where I got off stage and Chris was like, yo, what was that? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, Gerard, don't try to force it to right. happen again. Allow it to yeah. come up. And to be able to start doing that in a show live, and now to be able to start doing that in auditions consistently, mm. That's where I feel like now my process has evolved. Yeah. You know? And that's, I think, so much of the artistry of what we do as actors is putting yourself in a physical, mental, emotional space where you are able to do anything that comes to you in the moment, but also able to not do those things if you, yep. do, if you don't want to, if you think it doesn't, like, what, like, maintaining yourself sort of floating in this space of availability for whatever comes regardless of what's worked in the past what's not worked in the past mm -hmm. you know keeping in mind all of the work you've done your knowledge over what your character wants i think that's a remarkably tricky thing to to do to, to a place to sustain yourself over the course of a show just takes a lot of work and a lot of training yeah. um, but is can be so rewarding for those moments that do come out of wherever and you are available to them yeah you know you would i don't know if you if you've heard this in acting classes i would hear this all the time because i went to such a methody school hmm. but like brando with the glove and on the waterfront you know like the glove drops and while elliot kazan is rolling you know the camera and brando just instinctively picks up the glove uh from his scene partner i can't remember her name right now um and how like oh man that's such a you incorporate that in live. And I've always looked at that as like, okay, a happy accident. How do you allow happy accidents to happen? And then how do you allow just, there's this great book by uh, Mike Alfreds, who used to work at Lambda called Different Every Night, which is my oh, yeah. favorite, favorite acting book. It's actually, I think, a book for directors. Mm -hmm. But he talks about that, this idea of like, same action, the what is the same, the how is different. Hmm. And how can the how be different every single time? Even when the how is dope one night and you find something and all of you on stage find something as a company, as an ensemble, 
It's like, okay, the next night or the matinee show, whatever it is, how do we allow it to be different? Mm -hmm. If it's similar, cool, but let's not go for a result. Yeah. Or, you know, going back to that, that, that light bulb that went off for me, the outcome is not up to me, mm. you know, which I used to freaking strangle and, you know, wrestle the outcome to the ground right. because if I could, then everything would be perfect. Yeah. You know, this, yeah. Is, this is what will happen. So I'm going to make it happen. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's tempting, um, but that's unfortunately not how it works. Right. But, right. uh, Gerard James, thank you so much for coming and, and yeah. talking to us today. I hope y'all listening have en enjoyed it as much as I have. Uh, any any parting words for our, our listeners? As artists, like in this industry, as tough as this, as this industry is, there is the, there's kind of like the inner voice that you have, your your artistic sensibility, your your artistic self, your spirit that can't be can't be like dissuade or or uh can't get value from the industry that's what i want to say hmm. not to get your value from the industry i think that's what i would absolutely that's something to get your value from within to get confirmation and affirmation from your community and from your friends that's what i think can sustain you through a 13 year period where you're like doing student films and yeah doing a student film where you're never going to get the footage or doing a student film where it's uh, the middle of December and you're outside in Central Park on a bench freezing and it's supposed to be a movie that's black and white and without sound and you think it's going to be cool <laughs> and then it shows up and it's not just black and white and without sound. No one's lit. It's just black. Like everything's dark. <laughs> you can't see anybody. Yet you spent, you know eight hours yeah. across three days shooting in the freezing in the cold, freezing, yeah. you know, like it will sustain you through all of that. If you get yeah. your value from something outside of the industry, or even if it's within the industry, your inner circle and people that you trust who can affirm your purpose within this industry. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, if you're in purpose, success which changes so much defined by industry standards, uh, you'll be a bit more on solid ground. And the seasons could change, the weather could change, and you'll 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 still be solid. So Absolutely. that's what I'll I'll leave everybody wow. with. That's heavy, important wisdom from Gerard James. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for listening. I am James Hale. We hope you tune in next time for another episode of One Hail of a Conversation. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. To learn more about any of the creatives who spoke in this episode, check out their social media links in the episode description.